Thank you, ladies, so very much for preparing our hearts with that beautiful song. And that would be our prayer. Lord, take my hand. And let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are always with us. Father, that you will never leave us nor forsake. Father, we know that you hold on to us, hold on to our hand. Father, help us to always remember that as we walk through the valleys of this life until we see you face to face. And Father, now we ask for encouragement from thy word this morning. Thank you for the words you will speak to our hearts as we seek your will. And we'll give you the thanks as we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, if you'll take your Bibles, let's turn to Colossians, the book of Colossians. We're continuing our study in this tremendous letter the Apostle Paul wrote to the church at Colossae. We're going to finish up the last few verses in chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1. And as you recall, last week when we were studying here, uh, we had seen how the Apostle Paul was explaining to the church how Christ has reconciled us to God through his uh, sacrificial death on the cross, atoning for our sin. And so we spoke of Christ's reconciliation for us, that we can be reconciled to God, we who are sinners, but we can have now a right relationship with God. But in verses 24 to 29, the Apostle Paul now opens his heart up about his personal calling. His personal calling, but reminding the church that it is their calling also. And this is, so we are going to be able to apply this to our own hearts this morning and our own lives. But let's begin by looking at verse 24. Paul writes, Colossians 1, 24. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, in that my flesh... And in my flesh, I do my share on behalf of his body, which is the church, in filling up that which is lacking in Christ's affliction. That which is lacking in Christ's affliction. Now, let's break this down, what Paul is trying to say here. Beginning of the verse kind of is one of those things that we we struggle with. Because he says... Now, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. Rejoicing in his sufferings. Now, remember the Apostle Paul's in a Roman prison when he's writing this. How many of you were ever in a situation where you were confined in some, some way? It might have been in the hospital. And suddenly you find yourself in the hospital in ICU or in the, for some other reason, you had surgery, something that's keeping, is, it's, it's just like a prison to you. Can you honestly say that during that time you were rejoicing? Were you rejoicing over your situation, rejoicing in your sufferings? I don't think many of us would say yes. Absolutely, I was rejoicing. No. What do we usually pray? Lord, get me out of here. 
please deliver me, you know, heal me, and, and anything but rejoicing. But again, when we, we hear Paul talk about his rejoicing in his sufferings, uh, we can't help but think of other passages of Scripture that talk about joy in the midst of trial. In the midst of suffering. And we find one of them in James chapter 1. If you'll turn with me to that familiar passage. James chapter 1. And here James. uh, Now is encouraging the saints. To have the same attitude that Paul was speaking of. And it's, it's that having joy in the midst of suffering. James chapter 1, pick it up at verse 2. Consider it all joy. There it is. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in Nothing. Now, many of you have a King James Version, so I just want to read the translation from King James. All right? Because it it uses a few different words to translate. In the King James Version, it reads, My brethren, count it all joy when ye fall into diverse temptations. Now, other translations, this one, New American Standard, translates it, encounter various encounter various trials but that word temptations it is actually referring to trials in our life <clears throat> now sometimes the trials can be a temptation but it's talking about all kinds of circumstances that that are difficult in our life and bring suffering so my brother encountered all joy when you fall into diverse temptations knowing this that the trying of your faith worketh patience. And again, that word patience is translated uh, here in, in the New American Standard as endurance, produces endurance. Same thing, patience and endurance, to be able to endure the testing. And then if we finish with verse four, but let patience have her perfect work, that ye may be perfect and, in, and entire, wanting nothing. And what's one point that uh, needs to be mentioned is that the word perfect there. You know, so when we see the word perfect, we think of sinless. You know, no sin. We, get, we can actually be perfect. And people have taken this verse and said, well, there must be a place where the Christian finally arrives at at a, at, at a um, level of sinlessness. And that people actually believe that. And they're striving in the Christian life because they haven't been taught the scripture, the, the truth of scripture. They think that the, they will arrive at a plateau where they ha- have it all together and no longer they are sinless. And so that's what they strive for, complete sinless, sinlessness. That will never happen while we are on earth. While we as believers are here on earth until we get to our heavenly home, you and I have that old nature that, and you, you, you probably noticed it 
this morning, getting up and getting ready maybe for church, has that old nature ever shown its, uh, its fruit? Yeah. When, when we get mad or upset at a family member or we're late or something goes wrong and, uh, oh, all through the week we will find that we're not perfect. So this word perfect doesn't mean sinlessness, but it refers to uh, maturing spiritually in the Lord, arriving at a, a, a place of maturity, uh, spiritual maturity. But here, James says, like Paul, consider it joy when you encounter these various trials. Joy. That's, that seems absolutely impossible. And humanly speaking, on a natural level, it is. But Paul learned what joy was. And the key is understanding what joy is and how we obtain it. Did you come this morning with joy in your heart? Joy that, that floods your soul. A joy that you may have had the worst week in the world. I've talked to some of you who've had, you know, uh, one friend in particular here just said, it was one of the worst weeks I've ever had. And everything seemed to go wrong. And, and suddenly, suddenly there's that point in time where you realize that the Lord Jesus is there with you and you focus on him, fix your mind on him, suddenly things can begin to change in our mind and heart. And that is biblical joy. So what is the secret to biblical joy? Well, let me give you a good description of biblical joy, okay? Biblical joy is choosing to respond to external circumstances with inner contentment and satisfaction because we know that God has a purpose for the suffering and trials and believing he will accomplish his work through us and through it. Basically, that's it. My joy, biblical joy, is not dependent on my circumstances this week. What is happening to me should not dictate whether or not I have joy. Because biblical joy is actually a choice. Biblical joy is something I choose. And it, my joy, which is a contentment, inner contentment, with, in the midst of all the trial and all the fire and everything else that, that's going on, it's that inner contentment. It's my joy is in the Lord because of my knowledge of who he is and knowledge of his word. That I believe, Lord, you are in absolute control of my life. And does God not have the right to do with whatever he wants with the, the clay? The potter can do whatever he wants with the clay. And sometimes molding that clay, sometimes uh, if, if you're that clay and, you're, uh, and the, the potter's molding, uh, there's a twisting and turning that, that can, can hurt. And then, if, and then you're put into the kiln and fired up. These things, God makes 
the decisions about our life, but he knows how much we can bear. But in it all, I like the, and you like the Apostle Paul and James, we can count it all joy, consider it joy that we have the, uh, the uh, you, you might say the honor of suffering for Christ. And I want to turn back now. If you'll turn back with me to Colossians chapter 1 there, no, back to verse 24. Notice he said, For I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. So what's on his mind? On Paul's mind is the fact that his suffering is, is for the church for the people at Colossae, that he's there because of the gospel that he preached, and they are watching Paul. And so he is suffering for the sake of the gospel, suffering for them, but he's taking part in the affliction of Christ. And look, look at the rest of it. And in my flesh, I do my share on behalf of his body, which is the church, so here he's suffering uh, for the sake of the church, that, that the church will continue to grow. And then he says, in filling up that which is lacking in Christ's affliction. Do you see that? That which is lacking in Christ's affliction. This particular verse has been misunderstood, mistranslated, wrongly interpreted by the Roman Catholic Church. At the Roman Catholic Church, and many of you uh, may know of, of, of the teachings of, of the Catholic Church, but the Roman Catholic Church takes this verse and bases their idea of purgatory on this. Maybe you didn't know that. Notice Paul said, he said, in filling up, I rejoice in that my suffering I, is filling up that which is lacking in Christ's affliction. The Roman Catholic Church imagined he, that here is a reference to the suffering of Christians in purgatory. Christ's sufferings, they maintain, was not enough to purge us completely of our sins. Well, what if that's what a person believes, then how powerful and efficient is the blood of Christ? But they, they say that uh, we need to suffer more. Christians must make up what was lacking in Christ's suffering on their behalf, by their own suffering after death. Now, that certainly can't be Paul's point. But it, when you, when it, the way he's written it, I can see where someone would say, well, Paul says, uh, you know, there's, uh, I need to be filled up with that which is lacking in Christ's affliction. So what does he really mean by that? Basically, the Apostle Paul recognizes that his suffering was, is basically was intended by evildoers 
the suffering was intended for Christ. It's as if Christ were still there and they see the Apostle Paul and suddenly he's talking like Jesus talked. He's carrying the message Jesus carried. He's speaking of this Jesus of Nazareth that he is the only way. And through his death on the cross, there is forgiveness of sin and his shed blood is is the only way to have our sins cleansed. And so what does the world do? When they look at you and they look at me, hopefully they will see Jesus Christ in our life to the point where sometimes you and I are going to suffer for being a Christian. And they are going to take it out on you just like they did when when Jesus was on earth, if you remember the Apostle Paul told the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 1.5, For just as the sufferings of Christ are ours in abundance, so also our comfort in abundance through Christ. Turn to John chapter 15 quickly with me. Gospel of John 15, and we see what our Lord Jesus said to the disciples there in the upper room. John chapter 15, Gospel of John 15, and let's pick it up here at verse, <clears throat> verse 18. John 15, 18. Jesus said, if the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore what? What does he say? The world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you. A slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. Do you see what Jesus is saying? Jesus is saying, dear follower of me, dear Christian, you are my disciple. I have gone, but understand this, that you will suffer persecution. The world will hate you. And the world will come at you as if they were coming at Jesus Christ. And therefore, The suffering that you and I endure as a believer is what Paul means by uh, fulfilling the the affliction of Christ uh, in me that was lacking. In other words, uh, that I am continuing to, uh, as if Christ were still on earth, I am receiving the attacks that he would have taxed. Uh, would have uh, received his attacks because I have Christ in me and I represent the Lord Jesus and therefore I can expect suffering and trials. So dear dear Christian friend, don't be surprised and shocked when suddenly a coworker or uh, someone at school just kind of uh, gives you the cold shoulder or talks behind your back because you're, you're one of those 
born-again Christians. You're one of those Bible thumpers. I remember in high school, uh, I went to a public high school. Um, I went to a school, a high school called Lower Marion High School. And uh, <clears throat> that happens to be the high school that Kobe Bryant graduated from. I don't want to go into it, but <laughs> of course he graduated. I was long graduated before he went to the school, but that's the claim to fame of the school. But, but I remember, especially in 12th grade, I would bring my Bible to school. And when I, when I get to school, uh, you know, word got around. They knew that I was a Christian. And so... Guess what my nickname was? There goes that Bible thumper. I was called a Bible thumper. Hey, Bible thumper. And uh, I won't tell you some other nicknames that they gave me. But that was, that was the one that set me apart. And words of persecution. And I, they came, that came to me and that alienated me from many in the school who, who despised Christianity and despised Christ. The school I went to, it might have been 75% Jewish. And so, because it was a Jewish community in that area, Balakinwood and, and the surrounding Montgomery County area there. And, and so, there was hatred towards Christ, towards Christianity. And here's this guy walking down the halls holding his Bible with his books. And the Lord taught me, don't be ashamed of my word. Don't be ashamed of me. Because it was, would, would have been so easy to take that Bible, to tuck it into my bag. And I'm, I wasn't trying to flaunt it or anything like that. But I knew that the Lord wanted me to not be ashamed of the gospel. And God gave me the opportunity to share Christ with a number of the students because, because they, they heard that I was called the Bible thumper. And they wanted to know, so what is this Bible thumper thing? And, and what is, you carry a Bible, what's that all about? And the Lord gave me opportunity. So, but understand that Jesus Christ wants us to be prepared for persecution. So go back with me now to Colossians chapter 1. This is what Paul is talking about in that which is lacking in Christ's affliction, which means he's continuing to suffer for the sake of Christ. But now we come to verse 25. Look at verse 25 with me. He goes on. Of this church, I was made a minister according to the stewardship from God bestowed on me for your benefit, that I might fully carry out the preaching of the word of God. That I might fully carry out the preaching of the word of God. In that, that, other, that verse 24, we saw that the Apostle Paul was speaking of his call to suffer for Christ. But now we see Paul's call to be a steward of the gospel. 
a calling to be a steward of the gospel, which each one of us are to be a steward of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Notice he says there, of this church, I was made a minister and according to the stewardship from God bestowed on me for your benefit. And what was the stewardship? To carry out the preaching of the word of God. Few things about when he uses the word minister. Of this I was made a minister. When Paul looked at himself, he had a, the proper perspective of himself as a minister of Jesus Christ and of the gospel. And the foremost thing was that he knew that he was a servant of Jesus Christ or a slave of Jesus Christ. You'll notice that the Apostle Paul never wrote in his letters, I am a prisoner of Rome. No. What did he always start many of his letters with when he was in, in jail? He would put a prisoner of who? Jesus Christ. A prisoner. I am a prisoner of Christ. I am a bond servant of Jesus Christ. And he defined himself as a servant. Of Jesus Christ. And Paul had the, had the, um, the attitude and the heart of a servant to the point where he, like the, the, the uh, John the Baptist, would, would tell uh, everyone once Jesus came on the scene, John said, he must increase I must what? Decrease. Dear friend, if I can get that thought and that heart attitude in my mind, I will be the right kind of servant for the Lord Jesus in being a steward of the gospel and the word of God that he's given to me and to you, to all of us. This is not just for those who are ministering full-time ministry, preaching, teaching, missionary work, this is for each and every one of us here this morning. That as Paul was be, became a steward of the gospel, the word of God, it was given to him. That word stewardship, if you have a King James Version, it's transla- the word is translated dispensation. Okay, dispensation. And when you read that, you wonder, well, what, is, what does that mean? But... Uh, a short definition of, of stewardship or dispensation is a divine decree affecting an individual or group. Okay, that's pretty, pretty simple. A divine decree affecting an individual or a group. In other words, God has given you and I something to use for his glory, and we are responsible for it. And what is it? It's the gospel. It's the word of God right here. And it's just not those who go into, for those who go into full-time ministry. Turn to Matthew chapter 20 with me. Let's go to Matthew 20. And here's a parable of our Lord Jesus. Matthew 20. Look what Jesus gives as a parable. Matthew 20, verse 1. 
For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. When he had agreed with the laborers for a denarii for the day, he sent them into his vineyard. In other words, the owner was hiring people and saying, this is what I will give you as wages if you'll work for me. So they said yes, and out they went to work in the vineyard. Verse 3. And he went out about the third hour and saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And to those he said, you too go into the field and whatever is right, I will give you. So they went. And again, he went out about the sixth and ninth hour and did the same thing. And about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing. And he said to them, why have you been standing here idle all day long? And they said to him, because no one hired us. These are people looking for a job. No one's hired us. So the landowner said to them, you too, go into the vineyard. In other words, work for me. I'll give you, I'll give you pay. Verse 8. When evening had come, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last group to the first. And when those hired about the 11th hour came, each one received the denarii. And verse 10, and when those hired first, in other words, they spent more time the first one spent more time working all day in the vineyard. The guys at the 11th hour came on the job. They basically only worked an hour before and didn't work as long. But they get, they're going to get the same pay, a denarii. And when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more. And they also received each one a denarii. So they couldn't believe that that. The owner would give uh, same wages to, to the other ones who didn't work as much. Verse 11. And when they received it, they grumbled at the landowner saying, These last men have worked only one hour and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden and the scorching heat of the day. But he answered and said to one of them, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarii? That was the original agreement, right? They took that pay that it was offered to them and they were happy with it. But now they're unhappy because someone's getting the same thing who didn't work as much. Take what is yours, verse 14, and go your way. But I wish to give to you this last man. I, I wish to give to you this last man the same as to you. Is it not lawful for me to do what I wish with what is my own? Or is your eye envious because I am generous? Thus, the last shall be first and the first last. What Jesus is saying through this parable, dear friend, is that you and I, all of us are called into the, uh, the field, the field of, <clears throat> to bring in a harvest. 
We are sent out to the vineyard, this world. And you and I, though I may be doing more work called to be a full-time pastor, yet in God's eyes, it's no different than each one of you who maybe have a ministry that is, is more temporary or it's behind the scenes, working with kids, Sunday school, helping with cleanup or anything else you do for the Lord or for the body of Christ. And when we get to heaven, you will receive great reward. And you and I, we will one day receive our wages in heaven. And if we just remember that, that he has his eye on you, but Jesus Christ is concerned that I am a steward of what he's given me. Now, he, you and I don't have the same talents and gifts to use, but what we all have been given is the gospel. And what are we to do with that? We are to be ready to give it out and to, to serve the Lord, be his servant, as the Apostle Paul did, and be willing to, to not bury, my, bury it and just wait for his coming, but he wants each one of us to be in service for him. And you know, as, we, as Nick shared this morning, uh, and actually uh, Greg went into detail on the needs we have here at the church, at Jonestown Bible Church, we need... Desperately, we need a, uh, a teacher for ch- junior church, for those young ones. Someone who can say, I'll commit for two weeks a month. Uh, those two Sundays, I'll go down and I will teach those young ones. And we, we're, we're, we put out the call and we pray, Lord, send someone into the field and that might come and and minister the gospel to these young ones. There's the call to the fair. We have the the fair out there waiting for us that it's it's our outreach, whether it be helping the school and administration or at the Bible tent, the tent where we just, we have a sign says free Bibles and to to commit to some t- a day to just say, I'll be there and I'll hand out Bibles. And by the way, we have Bibles for all ages. We have Bibles for the kids, easier reading and pictures, and then we have, have more adult Bibles. But these are to give out the gospel, to give out the word of God, which Paul was called to do. But we must remember that each one of us have been called to do this in different ways. Yes. In different capacity, yes. But I have to ask myself, Lord, am I doing what you called me to do? And what kind of steward am I being? The Lord wants you and me to be willing to say, yes, Lord. Where would you have me go? What would you have me to do? So go back with me now and let's finish up here. The Colossians chapter 1. Notice he... He speaks in verse 25 about being a faithful steward. 
But then we're going to put verse 26 to 29 all together. So let's follow along. When he, he ends verse 25 with carry out the preaching of the word of God. And verse 26, he writes, that is uh, the preaching of the word of God. The mystery which has been hidden from the past ages and generations, but has now been manifested to his saints, to whom God willed to make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery. There's that word mystery again. Mystery among the Gentiles. And now at the end of verse 27, he defines what the mystery is. Which has been hidden for all the ages before. But now since because of the church age. And because now we have the, we are on the other side of the cross. He says, this mystery, which is... Christ in you, the hope of glory. And so therefore, verse 28, we proclaim him, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom that we may present every man complete. Some, again, translate that word perfect, but it means complete in Christ, mature in Christ. And then verse 29, for this purpose also I labor, striving according to whose power? His power, which mightily works within me. And I want to connect two thoughts here as we close. Verse 27, what, he talks about the mystery. And what is the mystery? He said, it's, the mystery is Christ in you, which is... Gives us the hope of glory, hope of eternal things and eternal life. It's Christ in you. First of all, Paul is talking about the incredible mystery of the permanent residence of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Christ that comes into a believer the moment we believe. The moment we are born again, you have received Christ into your heart and life. Through the Holy Spirit. He has sent his spirit permanently to dwell within you. And Paul, the Apostle Paul calls our body, we are a temple of the Holy Spirit. Jesus resides in you and me. In these fleshly bodies. I look at you and from here, I can't tell that Jesus is living inside you. I can't, I can't see that visually. You can't see it. But I know it's true. Based upon the promise that Jesus was going to send his spirit and he was permanently going to come and indwell each one of us, one of us. And therefore, the Old Testament saints never understood the mystery that one day Christ would live in the hearts of men and women that per take permanent residence and dwell there. That was a mystery. And now it's been revealed to you and to everyone And they, as we bring the gospel. That's the gospel. Guess what? We tell people, you, when you ask Christ to be your Savior, you put your faith and trust in him. He'll cleanse you of your sin and he will come and indwell you. And live inside you until the day he calls you home. And what happens then? When we understand that I have Jesus Christ living in me, 
that mystery, I understand the mystery, Christ is living in me, what happens then? Verse 29. He says, For this purpose I also labor, striving according to his power, which, what? Mightily works within me. Which mightily works within me. Here it is. Dear Christian, how do we carry out the stewardship of the gospel in this world while we're here, while we have the time we have? And we've been called into the field by our Savior, our Lord, our Master. How can I do it? I, I might be afraid. I might be scared of what people will say, what people will think. I have Christ in me. Paul, therefore, says, I am going to strive and do it through the power, his power that works mightily in me. And that same power that worked in the, the Apostle Paul's life and body is the same power you have. That you have the Holy Spirit's power to, to strengthen you through those times of suffering, through the pain this week, through the discouragement, through the times of despair, through the times of loss. If you've lost a loved one or you lost your job. Or something terrible has just come upon you. You got bad news from the doctor. Jesus Christ can empower you to be able to endure it. He will give you the strength, the supernatural strength to endure it. He promised he would. He, his power works in my weakness. As the Apostle Paul talked about to the Corinthian church when he talked about his thorn in the flesh. That he prayed about, Lord, would you take it away? Three times, God said, no. I might, you, must, you must deal with it, Paul. You must live with it <clears throat> so that you may learn something. That you may learn of my grace. That you will find that my grace will empower you and strengthen you in your weakness to be able to keep on going. In your weakness, you will be made strong by the, my power that is within you. Dear Christian... That power is yours. Christ is in you this morning. Take that with you this week. When you realize that the living God is dwelling within me, has chosen to dwell in this old fleshly sinful body. But he has redeemed me and he chose to live in you and live in me. And what does he want to do? He wants to manifest himself to the world through you, through the way you live through the way we talk, the way we act toward others. That is how the world sees Jesus in us. When we are allowing Christ to live through us and have control of my mind and my body and allowing the, myself to be filled with the Spirit, means controlled by the Spirit, so that my actions are evidence that I belong to Christ. And remember, some of the world, world will, will say, I want what you have. But there will be others that will say, oh, you're one of them. You're one of those Jesus freaks. They used to use uh, that, that term, Jesus freaks. Let us be Jesus freaks for the glory of God. No matter what the world says, and watch what God will do. You will bring in a harvest. God will bring in a harvest through you and me. 
If we will just say, yes, Lord, where can you use me? Show me. And when opportunities come across, and we have opportunities here at the church, as you heard of, opportunities to serve the Lord and to help to go into that field, you will be used mightily of the Lord. And when you get to heaven, you may not see much fruit down here, and you might get discouraged, but remember your wages. The vineyard owner will give you the wages in heaven when he sees you face to face. Let's pray together. As we bow this morning before the Lord, dear Christian, perhaps as you look at your life and how busy it is, you realize that you've passed up opportunities to be used of the Lord. To go out into his vineyard, whether it be a a children's program, help in some capacity in ministry here at the church or elsewhere. But, but the opportunity has come to you and you've passed it by. Perhaps the Lord is speaking to your heart right now, dear Christian, saying, you are a steward of the gospel I've given you. I've saved you. Now you must take it to the world. Would you say, Lord, here I am. Send me. However he wants to choose. Just surrender your will to him. Say, Lord, you show me what you want me to do. I'm willing. I'm willing to serve. Make that decision, Christian. If you're here without Christ, I invite you to accept the Lord Jesus as your personal Savior. You're You're going through life without him, and you're lost in your sin. My friend, unless you turn to the narrow road and get off the broad road, which leads to destruction, come to the narrow road, which leads to heaven and eternal life, you must come to the cross and believe that Jesus died on the cross for your sins and took your punishment upon himself. If you're ready to accept Christ as your Savior today, you've never done it but you want to trust him to save you, pray with me now. Pray a prayer, something like this. Say, dear Lord Jesus, I know I'm a sinner and I'm so sorry for my sin. I believe you died on that cross for me and took the punishment for my sin. Come into my heart right now and wash my sins away. I receive you today as my very own Savior. Thank you for dying for me and rising from the dead, Lord Jesus. And with heads still bowed, if you gave your heart to Christ this morning, you are now a child of God. You have been born again spiritually. And now God has a plan and purpose for your life. And he is going to use you mightily for his kingdom. Welcome to the family. Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, for speaking to our hearts through your living word once again. And may we leave here, Lord, knowing that there's a harvest out there. And may we be willing to go out and be your servants, even if it means to suffer for Christ's sake, that we might one day hear you say, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Enter into my kingdom. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.